Hello and welcome to another Faces episode brought to you by Earth Refuge, the planet's first legal think tank dedicated to climate migrants. My name is Ole Tervai and I am the organization's lead correspondent. Today, I'm more than happy to be joined by Lauren Grant. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Ole. Great to be here. Lauren is not only our fantastic director of field research at Earth Refuge, but also the founder of the International School on Climate Migration, which started in early June. This exciting five-week program is another world's first, which in turn explains why even former UN Special Rapporteurs applied to take part. In today's episode, Lauren is going to share about what made her start this exciting project, how to prepare for sessions with more than 100 participants, and what substantial areas the school is focusing on. But without any further delay, I want to jump to our first question, Lauren, which, as usual, is where in the world do you call home? I love this question. It's hard to answer, actually. I would <laughs> say London at the moment, but of course, a piece of my heart will always be in Portland, Oregon, where I'm from as well. So maybe both. <laughs> <laughs> Now that we've already known that you founded the International School on Climate Migration, I'm also curious what made you interested in climate migration in the first place? Another great question. Um, my background is in human rights, um, academically speaking, research and advocacy related, but I would say it's it's a much deeper kind of um, heart on my sleeve connection to social justice related issues. I feel that the climate crisis, as you well know, uh, amplifies and exacerbates so many existing vulnerabilities and disparities um, really across across the globe over. Uh, so for me, climate change itself is one of the most kind of intimidating threats that, you know, is is continuing to um, increase in its extremity and its frequency uh, to destroy the livelihoods and the lives um, and even threaten the continuity of, of peoples, especially indigenous peoples. So I think when I kind of, you know, woke up to the to the incoming crisis of, of climate change, um, it was at a similar time that I started to realize the impact that this would then have on, you know, forcibly displacing people to, to, to move from their homes, um, oftentimes kind of against their, their will and their wishes to do so. And there's really just a, a massive kind of issue of climate and environmental and social and economic justice here. And I'm especially interested in the kind of questions of accountability and responsibility on a global scale for those issues. And of course, in, you know, doing my small part in protecting and in ensuring the, the lives and the rights and the livelihoods of those who are most impacted and I think the the biggest piece here being that, as as you're well aware, and as as most who are aware of Earth Refuge's work are, of course, there's a legal vacuum that exists um, to to that might otherwise protect the rights of climate migrants. So in a way, I'm compelled to this issue because I I feel that we're kind of fighting to develop a set of rights for people that aren't there, that need to be there, that have a really strong basis in the international kind of legal landscape that we have at the moment and that 
you know, also have a strong basis, I think, in in moral and ethical and, and political terms as well. And I see the issue as quite sidelined, uh, though it's, you know, a humble sector, the climate migration one, it's kind of rapidly growing, which I think is amazing to see in my short kind of year and a half within this space. So I would say that that also kind of fuels me to to stick around and to keep investing all my all my time and energy, probably too much time and energy, but maybe there's no such thing. <laughs> Yeah, it's truly all her time and energy. I can confirm. Uh, <laughs> Lauren, you you just mentioned that you your academic background lies in human rights. Um, you pursued an MA in human rights at Budapest, but today you are in the final stages of your MSc in violence, conflict, and development at SOAS University in London. And now I wonder why did you choose this program or more provokingly, I wonder why didn't you choose a program closer tied to climate migration, if you are that interested in it? Yeah, um, well, my spiel is that if there was a MSc or an MA in climate migration at the moment, I would be in it. Um, but there isn't, sadly. And the second part to that spiel is that if we don't have such a postgraduate program in the next five years, uh, I will create one that that it really is high time that we introduce this issue to um, academic circles, um, absolutely at the postgraduate level, but even at the, the PhD level, this is slowly starting to pick up. Um, and at the undergraduate level, there again is effectively kind of no discussion there. So in a way, violence, conflict and development have kind of been the, the stomping grounds through which I've applied a kind of climate migration lens to consider these issues. And development as in kind of development and underdevelopment with an emphasis on on the latter. Um, and I also have a bit of a background in genocide studies and in thinking about uh, some of the dynamics associated to climate migration through the lens of genocide, actually, which I know there's a lot of pushback around, but this is kind of the realm that I, I plan to pursue uh, my PhD research in. But essentially, to answer your question, there's just such a limited space in academic circles for this type of engagement and these topics, curriculum wise, but also kind of on the end of research centers and on the end of research clusters and projects and programs related to the to the topic. So I found mm -hmm. myself kind of carving my own own way forward and, and trying to bring some colleagues along for, for the journey throughout the process as well. Now you're starting to build this academic space for climate migration because you at least partly fit in this academic gap with your international school on climate migration. When did you first come up with the idea and how long did this seed grow before you actually implemented the idea? Yeah, so I, I think because there is such a limited space to address climate migration at the academic level, um, I was quickly kind of looking for it from the very beginning that I felt in a way quite isolated throughout my time in the violence, conflict and development program. Um, you know, I took all kinds of migration and, and refugee law related courses and environmental governance related courses. And I really tried to kind of forge a, a curriculum that would allow me to dive into climate migration, but without the kind of direct support. Um, so from the very beginning, I felt I suppose, quite alone in moments, kind of educating myself on, on the topic and and trying to kind of infer from from what was being discussed and what was being covered in my courses and, you know, to, to even raise awareness through discussions in those courses on 
the relevance of um, the climate change forced migration intersection, I found that I had quite a few colleagues around me who were um, interested in the topic as well and that they were feeling the same. And so I started to kind of put feelers out uh, about how we might collaborate, um, whether that be some kind of collaborative research space, research cluster perhaps, or, you know, kind of creating some type of, of programming um, and, and creating more space for, for discussion. So I, I suppose when I found that there was initially kind of an interest amongst uh, more people than myself, but that, that that isolated feeling was prevalent amongst all of them, uh, it was clear to me that there was not really a shortage of interest in the in the topic. And so this actually led me to uh, my initial idea was not to come up with a summer school, but to actually establish something more permanent to discuss uh, the the topic and to address it and to collaboratively research and engage on it within SOAS, um, something like a research center. So this is still kind of, you know, the, the origin story in a way, of course, the paths diverged and, and here we are with the school. But I think also when it started, I, I had no idea that it was going to turn into, you know, we have so many students enrolled um, and I had no idea it would it would kind of become this. But it just felt like upon reading all of the, the applications from the students to enroll, there was this kind of common story. You know, everyone's story is a bit different, but there was this commonality in the kind of drive and ambition to engage on this topic and the struggle for space in which to do that. And, you know, even a lot of applicants saying, oh, thank goodness that this school has been created. I've been looking for something like this. And again, I, I just found that all of these emails, you know, and I, I read every single one of them. It was such a treat to watch. I mean, my poor inbox, but it was such a treat to watch them all kind of roll in. And I could just resonate with every single one of them. And I'm sure if if you saw them as well as a curious uh, scholar and an individual interested in climate migration, uh, you would feel the same that there was kind of a fuel to the to the fire that became the school. Um, you know, through that mutual kind of interest and passion and again, the lack of a, of a space. So, so here we are now in the middle of this exciting course and I think it's going quite well. Oh, it is. I am a participant in the school and I can tell you it is awesome. Um, now you already started talking about the feedback you received once you proposed the International School on Climate Migration. And I was wondering whether this is mainly by the individuals who did not find space to talk about it yet in an academic way? Or is it also institutionally? Is it the university that supported you from the beginning? Was it other civil society organizations which supported? How did that go? Yeah, so when I had the initial idea, it was, it was not going to be called the International School on Climate Migration. And I wasn't conceiving of it as a, as a summer school either. In fact, the initial kind of flyer, which was circulated around SOAS, was actually rather ambiguous. It was kind of engagement opportunity on climate migration at SOAS. And from this flyer, ended up receiving about 17 applications from SOAS students. Um, and, and then the idea was to open it up to students at other universities as well. Uh, but there wasn't a, 
you know, there wasn't a clear kind of plan exactly of how to do this or where to do this. There was kind of the thought of staying more locally within the Bloomsbury area of London. So some of the universities around there. And then it wasn't until I got an email from a student at the European University Institute in Italy saying that he had seen this flyer circulating uh, at the university and was interested to attend what is now the school. And it really kind of, yeah, it just, it created so much excitement because it was, wow, how did this flyer already make all its way all the way to Florence? And, you know, it, it kind of opened the floodgates to actually, you know, let's, let's really do this because people really are not only keen to engage with this issue, but in need of spaces to, to do it. So it, it turned into circulating the flyer, you know, to institutions all over the world. And yeah, the, the floodgates were kind of opened and, and the applications started rolling in. And and I would say that the the university, the SOAS Department of Development Studies, has been a has been a great source of, of support. It's intimately kind of personally my my department there and um it's one that I have a lot of respect for. Um so it's it's been nice to have this backing. But then, of course, you can't kind of launch the world's first international school on climate migration and not bring Earth Refuge <laughs> into it um, as, as a director there. So, uh, of course, a, a lot of support from Earth Refuge, which I've been tremendously grateful for, which we can kind of call the co-host along with SOAS of the, of the school. But yeah, I would say I would say quite a bit of, of support in that respect and just a lot of really good receptivity a lot of excitement and support from kind of everyone involved throughout the process. I think we've all kind of been waiting for, for an opportunity like this to, to pop up. So people have been jumping on board, I would say. And then you started advertising the school um, and you already mentioned that there was a lot of applications rolling in. Um, and I wondered how many applicants did you have? Where did these people come from? How did that go? Yeah, so I think I had initially thought, oh, let's cap it around like 50 people max, thinking oh, there's probably no way we'll actually get 50 people. And now we have 165 people enrolled in the school in terms of our kind of enrollment list. I, I didn't expect, again, to get to get so many, but um, it's been great. Uh, really, people coming from from all different geographical locations in the world chiming in to, to the calls on Zoom. People coming from all different disciplines. We've got some people in geography departments, in law departments, development studies, sociology, even political science, international relations, security as well. Um, and then the more kind of climate change, governance, policy, disaster risk reduction focused people. Also, when I when I launched the the call um, for applicants, the idea was to recruit postgraduate students, which I guess I've been asked, you know, why did you choose that? And I guess it's probably just a product of my experience as a postgraduate student and being around them and, and seeing a need for, for the topic to be addressed at that level. But quickly the question started becoming, are we admitting people who aren't at the postgraduate level because we're getting a lot of applications? So we kind of extended um, extended the spaces for non-postgrads as well. So we have a small handful of undergraduate students. I would say the majority are postgrad students. And then quite a substantial number of PhD candidates, as well as a pretty significant number of professors. And I think that this is very telling. 
that this kind of lack of, of spaces in academia to address climate migration uh, is not just a, a problem at the kind of postgraduate or undergraduate level in terms of curriculum, that it's kind of a systemically felt challenge and issue for, for people seeking to work on, on climate migration at all levels. So I was grateful that we you know, were able to and have been able to kind of benefit from bringing this kind of wider variety of, of students coming from all these different disciplines into the same space uh, to share their kind of thoughts and, and ask questions and kind of engage with one another on the topic. Awesome. Thank you, Lauren, for sharing how the school was built. And now I'm really amazed to talk about what the school actually is about. Because we talked about how, you know, like how the idea initially a couple of years ago started growing. And then now we have the, the world's first international school on climate migration. But what is it about? It's, a f it's five webinars and five seminars that just started. I think we are in week three now. We learned the climate migration from all the other episodes, the famous episodes. We know that already. It's truly multifaceted. And nevertheless, you had to narrow it down to, to five perspectives for the five weeks. How did this process go? And most importantly, which five themes did you decide for? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a lot to sift through, of course. There's <laughs> always more to sift through. So our five themes, um, the first week was looking at climate migration, health, livelihoods, and underdevelopment, um, as well as development, kind of the, the dichotomy between the two. The next week was looking at unpacking coloniality, gender, race, class, indigeneity, and climate migration. And then last week we went into protection politics on climate migration, human rights, and refugee law. And then today uh, kicks off the fourth week on the climate migration conflict and violence link. And then next week, we'll conclude with our final week on mobilities and mitigation, disaster risk and resilience building. Um, I think the logic behind each separating each of these out this way. First of all, I wouldn't actually separate them if I didn't have to separate them because they're all very much intersectional. I think as we know about climate migration, it is an incredibly intersectional phenomena, um, not only in, in terms of how we kind of problematize it and understand it, but also how we respond to it, that we very much, you know, are in need of cross-sectoral approaches, that we have a very vast array of stakeholders that must kind of be in, engaged to be positioned to respond to it. But that in order to do that, um, we have to be quite clear about how we actually problematize it, which can often be very contentious, as I'm sure all of the listeners to the Faces podcast are quite familiar with mm -hmm. at this stage. So the overarching theme of the of the school um, is problematizing and responding to climate migration in the 21st century. So when I was kind of coming up with this overarching idea, I think the logic was uh, again that that we're we're actually not seeing very much movement. Um, you know we. We could say there's relative movement, but probably not as much as we need to see uh, in the law and policy arenas and the programmatic ones um, in the development sector, in the humanitarian sector, so on and so forth, to actually kind of start responding more effectively and systematically to climate migration and the kind of associated crises that come with it. And I think that a big reason for this is because it's become such a contentious kind of issue. 
that the idea of a climate refugee in particular is a very contentious issue. And so in a way, I, I, I see this kind of dissonance between, you know, understanding the challenges uh, in a way that allows for effective law and policymaking responses and kind of climate finance to support this and and even kind of which spaces should we be addressing this issue in? Should it be at, at the COP, uh, you know, at the conferences? Should it be in front of um, the UNFCCC at the, at the world's kind of international stage for climate governance? Should it be within human rights or refugee or IDP uh, spaces, more broad humanitarian protection spaces, sustainable development, um, so on and so forth? So I, so I kind of wanted to ensure that however I set up the, the syllabus, if you will, was really emphasizing at the very beginning the complexities of understanding um, what is climate migration. So we wanted to bring in from kind of, again, the very, very beginning kind of discussion around livelihoods and with an emphasis on health, but also on underdevelopment that that we wanted to highlight the way in which climate change um, is interacting with these kind of facets and in many ways threatening them and amplifying some of the vulnerabilities that come with them. And, and to try to kind of start from from that point, which was quite a quite a good way to start, I think. Um, and then perhaps just as importantly, kind of immediately trying to follow this discussion up with um, that of how, how does climate migration impact um, women and girls differently? How does it impact people of color differently? Uh, you know, people along different class lines, indigenous communities, minority communities, because you really can't talk about climate migration without talking about those disproportionate impacts um, and vulnerabilities and needs. And again, these are quite critical to kind of laying a foundation for how we're going to then talk about responding to to the crises, which I often, again, refer to as kind of intersecting and compounding crises that are overlapping. So then from there, we kind of dabbled into to the law and policy responsive side um, after laying that foundation by looking at human rights law and refugee law and some of the some of the policy measures that are being taken in the kind of climate change adaptation and mitigation and disaster risk reduction and management um, sectors. And so now we've got these two weeks ahead of us. And I suppose in a way we're adding one more layer of problematics which is, of course, the relationship between climate change and conflict and climate change and migration and conflict. And I think violence, I think the violence piece is also very important and often gets kind of left out um, as somebody who studies violence. I, you know, I think we'll have a lot of interesting kind of um, discussions coming up this week, thinking about what is violent in, in this process of uh, forced displacement related to the impacts of climate change or disasters, not just always in a kind of physical sense, but um, obviously Yamna at Earth Refuge is always really emphasizing intergenerational justice in kind of everything that we do. And I think there's something to be said um, for kind of the violence of, of not allowing for this type of justice to, to prevail and to unfold in the wake of um, climate-induced displacement. So I'm hoping that this session, this coming week, you know, starting today even, um, will start to allow us to unpack a little bit more those complexities within the climate migration realm. And that we'll kind of conclude by talking about uh, resilience, really. Yeah, under understanding, you know, who is moving and who is not moving and 
why are they not moving and where is the agency in that decision making or where is the lack of agency in that decision making and how can we mitigate kind of pushing people into making decisions in in a kind of um, anti-agentic way uh, without the space to really kind of decide for themselves. So this session will also have uh, a bit of an emphasis, mainly from Professor Bishwit uh, Malik, whose work looks at kind of involuntary immobility uh, versus trapped populations in particular. So we'll kind of start to examine this a bit and understand um, what can be done on the mitigation front to ensure that you know people have more agency in their decisions to move or to stay. So I guess overarchingly, um, a lot of pieces to to connect together. Um, but really, again, wanting to kind of design it in a way that would further one's understanding if this is an introductory session, first time anyone's ever really engaged with climate migration in an educational space, uh, wanting to lay a foundation for understanding that, look, climate migration is very, very complicated, but in some ways it's also not. <laughs> and and it, I think, really takes some unpacking and reworking and and putting things back together. But I think it's quite essential as well that, that that other half of talking about, okay, well then how do we respond is incredibly important and that it, it we can't really separate, you know, how we problematize and understand from the responses because we don't have the time to do that. We don't have the time to sit around and write papers and, and problematize and, and not then think about, well, what does this mean for policy and what does this mean for law? So I wanted to try to create a space that would kind of allow for those connections from the onset. Awesome. Thank you so much for this overview. I, I can imagine uh, that for some of our listeners who did not have the chance to participate in the school, it's quite a bit of a tease to know yeah. what has uh, been talked about, but they don't know the exact details. So I would love to jump into a bit of more details for the three weeks the three webinars and three seminars which have happened already but before doing that i want to advertise one of our earlier episodes face episodes which was on involuntary immobility with amy noel Mbioso, which was uploaded a couple of weeks ago so if you don't have the chance to participate in the school you can listen at least to this episode to learn a bit about it the first first session was on climate migration, health, livelihoods, and underdevelopment. Am I right when I say that this highlights a bit of the causes which forces people to migrate because of climate change? Yeah, yeah. When we, when we talk about health, livelihoods, and underdevelopment, how does climate change impact the health? How does it impact the livelihoods and underdevelopment? Which speakers did talk about that and what were their main insights? Yeah, something quite interesting happened in this session, uh, which was that um, our three speakers presented somewhat of case studies. We had uh, Professor Tisneem Sadidigui speaking about her work uh, in Bangladesh, and we had Professor Apashana Ghosh speaking about her work in, in India, and Dr. Megan Carney, who was maybe the more kind of theoretical, broader uh, focus on kind of food sovereignty and, and the threats to food security in the wake of climate change and what this means in terms of its relationship to uh, climate-induced displacement. Uh, but, but the case studies were quite 
uh, interesting because both um, Tasneem and, and Apashona had, you know, of course, been in the field collecting their data. So they were able to show us kind of what does all this actually look like on the ground. And, and there was this very interesting question in the chat uh, for both of them, actually, that basically asked, why did you choose to focus on women and girls so much mm -hmm. in this session, seeing as the next week theme was meant to address gender, right? And I thought that this question was so fitting and telling of the relevance of the kind of disproportionate impacts of women and girls that the climate crisis and climate-induced displacement bring with them. Because in a way, from the very onset, you couldn't not kind of emphasize and highlight mm -hmm. that differential impact. So in a, in a lot of ways, their presentations were centering kind of even the differential experiences of women and girls versus that of men um, in the case of um, both slow and rapid onset impacts. They were kind of talking about, um, uh, Tisneem anyway was focusing really on the kind of distinction between rural and, and urban experiences and, and the kind of challenges that are faced there in particular by women and girls. Um, she was mentioning kind of the challenges associated to private land ownership and the, the difficulty for women in accessing this and the impact that this has when they're uh, kind of agriculturally dependent um, and their livelihood prospects through this are, are being threatened by, in, in many cases, kind of extreme flooding um, and, and cyclones. Um, she talked about the kind of increase in violence in, in the domestic household level um, that often kind of comes up as a result of the intensifying stressors um, for women and girls um, and the the kind of ways in which, I suppose Apashana talked about this too, the ways in which the woman's um, burden kind of triples in the wake of disaster or climate change impacts that often they're, you know, in many ways responsible for the household and that when when climate impacts set in the, the kind of uh, challenges associated to just keeping up with kind of normal responsibilities is exacerbated quite a bit. But then there's, you know, literal threats to the to the crops and to the subsistence and the income generation prospects of such women. Um, so they talked about, you know, it's not uncommon that that um, a man of in within a household might be sent uh, seasonally or even temporarily to engage in, in the employment sector elsewhere, often to the cities, uh, then leaving the woman kind of behind again to continue running the household. So some of these dynamics were explored, the kind of gender dynamics of, of the household and the livelihood questions and whatnot. Um, I, I would say that the underdevelopment piece was, of course, completely relevant throughout the process, that there's a reoccurring kind of theme of of precarity oftentimes that um, individuals and households are in in kind of so-called low-income countries um, in many situations you know already vulnerable already living in conditions that are kind of substandard by what we might say um, that maybe in rights terms are not in line with the kind of right to an adequate standard of living um, that there's limited access to health services or food supplies and, and that this is kind of amplified even further uh, in the wake of climatic impacts that often at times actually destroy the, the infrastructure of a house or of a community or community resource centers that are highly dependent upon um, for livelihoods and survival. But that 
in the case of relocation, that precarity often kind of continues or is even further um, amplified or illuminated. So there were a couple of kind of examples from Oposhona's work of, for lack of a better way to put it, basically people squatting in the aftermath of um, extreme flooding events uh, in their relocation because there wasn't you know, a place or much support going back to that. How do we respond question? The infrastructure is kind of limited um, in these responses. So often people are having to kind of make do with with what they can find, what is accessible to them. Neither one of them touched on this directly, but um, I always just kind of have to highlight that from a 2012 study from Jane McAdams' research in Bangladesh, she mentions um, surveying a household of just under 600 people uh, who had moved in the aftermath of riverbank erosion. And the average distance that they had moved was one kilometer, with the largest distance being 10 kilometers. And I think this example really speaks to the theme um, for the first week of, of the school on climate migration, health, livelihoods, and underdevelopment, because it really shows the kind of social, economic, political, cultural considerations with an emphasis on the, the economic ones that kind of go into not only one's decision to move or stay in the wake of climatic impacts and disasters, but one's ability to move or to stay, that you can kind of only go within, you know, as far as within the means to to be able to go. But I think this is kind of highlighted a bit um, in the first week uh, with our with our speakers and of course then also an emphasis on the health challenges associated with a kind of big emphasis on the lack of access to to healthcare and to health services. Yeah, I could go into what Megan said, but I would say that it was quite a, a beautiful, critical um, kind of perspective on, on food and climate migration um, nexus and kind of provocative around, again, kind of food as being one of those those factors that falls within that kind of social, economic, cultural, political uh, reasons to, to move or to stay or, or capacities to move or to stay. So I felt like it was quite a good overarching kind of introduction to some of the the complexities that, you know, actually really intersect and kind of compound in the wake of, of climate change that um, lead to decisions to move or to stay, but also lead to, you know, the capacity to do that in the first place. And then in week number two, we try to tackle the interconnectedness of coloniality and climate change or climate migration. And there was one speaker that really stuck in my mind that left me speechless. That was Raki Ab. Mm -hmm. um, he is all around, I think that's what he called himself, all around activist. He is mm -hmm. a spokesperson of Free West Papua campaign. And he talked about his family's experiences in West Papua father was killed and he talked about the experiences of indigenous people in West Papua and then he told us well when you hear about West Papua it's mainly about nature being destroyed environment being destroyed but you barely ever hear about the fate of the indigenous population um, and this is tragic in so many ways because protecting the indigenous population from harm by the government and ensuring their very right to self-determination would not only prevent the most horrible violations of human rights from happening, but um, it would also help West Papua's ecosphere to recover. 
because Raki Api pointed out that indigenous peoples for hundreds and thousands of years, they lived in harmony with their surroundings and that nature was treated as a sacred place. Uh, he emphasized that a lot of the knowledge needed to save our planet is being held by the indigenous peoples around the globe today. And that it is a shame that their voices are almost nowhere being listened to. While Raki Ab was sharing these horrible examples of coloniality happening in West Papua in the present, we then had Dr. Ademola Jegere. He had a look into the history of, of it and was historicizing the issue of climate migration in the context of coloniality. Could you, Lauren, could you please share a few of the insights he gave? First of all, I think Reiki Ab's um, story and presentation was just something incredible. And I, I think so much of that is because of the, the you know, passionate resistance and resilience brought with um, the work that he's doing um, to shine light on um, the green state vision that he was mentioning uh, for West Papa. He was pointing out that um, five percent um, of of the indigenous peoples in the world are are preserving more than eighty percent of the world's biodiversity, but that ninety percent of ninety six percent rather of deforestation is happening on the same land, and I think this is such an important piece. in In the wake of COP um, twenty six, I remember hearing on the on the news that there was a group of native peoples to the Amazon uh, the Amazon of Brazil uh, who were basically physically stood outside of the COP negotiations making a call that Brazil and the Bolsonaro government can kind of say that it pledges to end deforestation as much as it wants but it will never happen unless indigenous lands are demarcated back to indigenous peoples um, and this really struck me because I feel that it it really speaks to the relevance of land um, to indigenous survival in the first instance and continuity, but also to curbing the kind of impacts of uh, what we now call the climate crisis and the environmental degradation and devastation that has kind of come with it. So in a, in a way, and to link what kind of uh, Professor Adamola was saying as well, there's a, there's a very strong historical basis for kind of explaining where we are today in terms of the climate crisis, but also in terms of the kind of modern day border regime that we have and our understanding of um, even the Westphalian state system and, and the ways in which the nation state functions and its kind of ability to uh, admit or deny entry for um, for people seeking asylum to to attach citizenship terminology to things um, and and to rights of course so in in a way I, I felt that the presentations were quite complementary of each other that Reiki was kind of speaking to the the current challenges and Ademole was kind of historicizing um, why we've why we've got these kind of current challenges obviously his with more of a focus on the african continent but there's i mean of course a, a legacy that we can trace from the 15th century really um in fact there's a um i believe it's carmen gonzalez who argues that we can really trace the origins of the anthropocene to the 15th century um with the kind of 
origins of settler uh colonialism uh across the the global south across the african continent and the americas that we can trace it there really because this is the origins of the industrial revolution if we want to trace it back and that throughout this whole process of kind of the making of the modern state system um the making of um the kind of border regimes that we have today and the making of the climate crisis with the production of emissions that ultimately we we can trace it back to a legacy of um of dispossession and of displacement um environmental destruction of extractivism and exploitation even of a reordering of social fabrics along kind of racialized hierarchical terms and that all of these kind of started to plant the seeds um and evolve into the world we know today um now obviously very predominantly aligned with and and kind of always from the beginning even aligned with the quest for the accumulation of capital um at the expense of um peoples of native peoples of their lives of their livelihoods um of what we of course now call their rights um and and of their continuity that there's an element of threat and um Ademole was explaining in his presentation i i thought this was so on point the kind of twin tragedies of colonialism and of climate change um and i think that that linkage between the two is absolutely critical um and and that taking a kind of um as sultana would call a critical climate justice approach that's decolonial that's feminist that's intersectional that's willing to account for the the multifaceted kind of identities and cultures and lives and experiences of of those who are threatened to be displaced by the impacts of climate change is absolutely key so i felt that that the you know that that historical piece we couldn't have the school on climate migration without having that historical piece without kind of situating um the current challenges faced within um this kind of complex web of what um Nudlovo Gatchenyi has called the genealogies of coloniality to me this is kind of the 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 best most fitting way at the moment to kind of frame and and situate the current challenges so i was quite grateful for this for this session and i will also add that um professor Samudo Atupatu um who guided the seminar for that session uh who has a law background um did quite a good job as well of shining light on the way in which international law um has been and continues to be kind of instrumental to a colonial project that continues to kind of subordinate and mar- marginalize indigenous peoples and that really it's time for that to change that if we truly want to respond to the crises that come with climate induced displacement um there has to be something decolonial about that approach um and something that acknowledges that the the frameworks the legal frameworks that we have to kind of contend with these crises um themselves have been quite problematic in kind of obfuscating the the prospect of responsibility and accountability related to climate induced displacement uh and the impacts of climate change on indigenous and communities of color in the first place and then finally week number 3 we talked about the legal protection of climate migrants we have heard that on considering refugee law people who are fleeing climate change and crossing international borders are not considered refugees 
because they are not being persecuted because of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion. The Refugee Convention is from 1951, so probably they didn't even think about climate change all too much back then. But that is still the reason why we don't have climate migrants considered refugees and that most of the potential host countries are resistant to or hesitant to change anything about it. But most of climate migration as of today is happening with, within borders anyway. Mm -hmm. But even there, we don't have strong legal protection of climate migrants. Nevertheless, we heard a lot of glimpses of hope from the speakers we have had in that session, which um, were Yumna Kamel, Timo Schmidt, and Matthew Scott. Yes. Timo Schmidt from the platform on disaster displacement and Matthew Scott, the head of the human rights and the environment thematic area at the Raoul Wallenberg Institute. And finally, Yumna Kamel, uh, one of the co-founders of Earth Refuge. To end on a positive note, there were also glimpses of hope from the different speakers. Could you share with us what can we hope for in the future in terms of legal protection of climate migrants? Yeah, I, I felt that all three of the speakers for this session kind of offered something different, uh, each kind of quite optimistic. I would say that uh, Yamna's kind of overview was, of course, more legally focused, um, with a bit of an emphasis on the kind of jurisprudential um, kind of ways forward. So she was pointing to the Shield case, of course, in, in Bangladesh, um, kind of the so-called world's first climate refugee, as well as the um, Taitiota case. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, yeah. Um, and kind of, you know, referring to the ways in which um, there have been some very subtle, faint, few and far between wins in the judicial realm related to deciding asylum cases related to the impacts of climate change and disasters. She pointed to the work that we undertake at Earth Refuge to kind of be creative in our uh, legal analyses and interpretations of existing cases and precedents there, kind of with the hope of developing um, or an aim to develop positive arguments for protection that are grounded in these precedents for future advocacy and, and litigation and obviously the toolkit project that we run um, at Earth Refuge. But she spoke in particular about the ways in which we might use rights like that of education and indigenous rights to culture or perhaps self-determination to kind of start to think about how we might extend the scope of protection for persons who are threatened to be displaced or have been displaced related to the impacts of climate change. She spoke a bit of some of the kind of international frameworks that we've seen. Um, she mentioned, of course, the Paris Agreement, touching on the, the kind of human rights dimension for migrants in particular within its preamble. And she spoke about the Nansen Initiative, uh, which of course has turned into what is now the platform on disaster displacement. Uh, so it was great to kind of have Timo with us as well to kind of take that a step further. And his 
his work was looking a bit more at kind of, you know, compiling what it is that the platform on disaster displacement has been analyzing since it was established in 2016. He put even a map up on the screen that you can find on their website in one of their databases of the world with kind of points plotted where we actually can see policies related to climate-induced displacement. Most of these are um, disaster risk reduction and climate change adaptation and mitigation policies. But this is, you know, admittedly the first time that I've ever seen a map that kind of marks where all of these policies are. The Platform on Disaster Displacement, to give a little bit of the the backdrop here, is a bottom-up state-led initiative that um, right now is headed by Fiji and France to bring together different states to kind of share their best practices and their challenges and to kind of work together collaboratively to respond to challenges associated to cross-border displacement by disasters. I would say it's one of the most promising kind of mechanisms that we have at the moment for compiling data, but also for actually starting to more tangibly try to tackle um, the cross-sectoral nature of these challenges and the approaches that are that are needed there. Um, so he pointed in his research to um, 21 countries with kind of pilot analyses and, and indicators where they're starting to track kind of what is the baseline for for commitments to climate change adaptation and mitigation through the lens of climate-induced displacement across borders. Um, he pointed out that most of the policies that they uh, are looking at at the PDDA that are being implemented by states are focusing on climate change and then next on disaster and then thirdly on human mobility so that there's still a bit of room to go to emphasize this focus but that at least it's kind of starting to to pop up um, a bit more and then matthew scott was basically looking at a human rights-based approach to internal disaster related displacement with a focus on the asia pacific region and he was really emphasizing the kind of layers of policy um, I liked this expression that he used and and kind of the, the ways in which we might take and actually implement, like what does it mean to take a human rights-based approach to internal displacement uh, within, within this region. Overall, I, I felt that all three of these presentations were speaking to that kind of what he's calling the, the layers of, of policy and the layers of law and um, the kind of you know, various spaces in which the issue of climate migration can be addressed and needs to be addressed and that is pushing to be addressed. Um, and again, the need for a more kind of concerted approach to to addressing them. Overall, I think normally in a discussion on the legal vacuum related to climate migrants, it's easy to kind of have a gloom and doom approach. I think like, like anything else in international law, it's slower to move. Um, it will take a lot of time, many years, to kind of cement and concretize n- new conventions or even to amend current existing conventions, um, whereas policy is a little bit more fluid. So I felt that this session kind of allowed us to see that you know policy developments really are happening and states really are starting more and more often to think about climate migration and think about how they need to respond to it. And that this is something very important, I think, for the those of us who are on the side of legal advocacy to kind of remember and to take into consideration um, as we're, you know, pushing the the kind of judiciaries to 
um, ideally start making kind of decisions for asylum that are more inclusive of the relevance of climatic impacts and disasters to the displacement for which the asylum is being sought. So overarchingly, I felt that the the last, uh, the most recent kind of session on protection politics was the kind of pros and cons, if you will, of um, the legal approach and the, the political approach with the kind of summary being that, of course, we need the, the fight to continue for both the law and the policy realms um, in, in furtherance of the protection and prevention of, of climate migrants and climate induced displacement, respectively. And that there is promise, you know, as Yauna was pointing out, there are a lot of cases that are pending before the courts right now that are uh, related to this topic and that could have really decisive outcomes for it um, in terms of the precedents they might establish, which, of course, at Earth Refuge is kind of um, a, a big thing that we're hoping to to see materialize. So I think there's I think there's prospects. I think we're definitely moving. But I think, again, tying this all back to the to the summer school, there's a there's a need for more research is something that is often said in the sector. And in order for that to happen, there needs to be a space for that to happen. So I'm kind of hopeful that the the participants um, attending this session, you know, are quite kind of law and policy making minded and obviously research driven uh, in a way that can start to kind of contribute even more to the development of these frameworks for for preventing and responding to climate migration. Lauren, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the interview and even more for your amazing work for founding this long needed school on climate migration and also giving space for scholars to discuss and to further research the implications of climate migration. Before concluding the interview, I just wanted to ask whether there are any final thoughts you wanted to share with our listeners. Yeah, thank you, Ole. Keep pursuing climate migration in whatever way you can in your research and your advocacy uh, keep talking about it um, it's a bizarre experience to sit in front of a, a, a room of people in a webinar and to, to tell them the kind of realities of about 25 million people being displaced each year related to these impacts since 2008 and a prediction of between 216 million to 1 billion people will be displaced by 2050 It's startling that that this is not known by people, that this is not a, a well kind of talked about, discussed issue in, in the kind of lay person sense. Um, but that it's also even more concerningly not addressed kind of in the academic spaces. Um, so if it's a topic that you're interested in, um, it's you know, maybe for better or for worse, kind of requires a bit of innovation at the moment that you're you're maybe not going to find the spaces that you want to find to engage on it. And like I said at the very beginning, I hope that that will change in the next few years. And I know that I'm committed to to playing a role in changing that. But you also might have to be too. Um, so I guess a, a word of encouragement around pushing this discussion and kind of utilizing the networks that you have to bring people together to engage on it, because it truly is critical and, and truly incredibly timely, but needs a bit of a push and needs probably your brilliant mind to kind of get it there. So yeah, I would say to 
to kind of do what do what you can and and not be afraid to dream big about creating spaces for for the topic because we really do need them it's high time thank you lauren thank you ole very much <laughs>